welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. It's 2.45pm in a secluded cottage less than one hour's drive from Langley, BC. Cam the Provocateur sits at his computer, ready to record a podcast. Yeah, so that's a thing. <laughs> Get ready for a lot more narration, guys, because this film's chock-a-block. Narration the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the house on Narration Street. Uh, well, uh, Cam, I guess the question is, what are we doing this week? We are talking about the 1945 World War II espionage film... The House on 92nd Street, a, I guess, crime docudrama with heavy affiliations from the FBI. So this is going to be a very interesting movie to talk about. And I hope everyone listening made an effort to track this movie down and watch it because I think you will be greatly rewarded at the very least taking part in this conversation. <laughs> I, yeah, I, def- I think watching the film lends a lot to hearing us talk about it. Um, maybe not uh, lends to your time committed to the film, <laughs> um, but hey ho! Now before we go on about this film, we originally had another film lined up, um, but because we realised that you can't find the film on streaming currently, although it looks like that might change in the future, we had the last minute swap around and pick this film out of our vaults to tr- to check out. So uh, I mean, it hasn't really affected our review or anything, but it's just interesting that we had to sort of find this one really. Yeah, because originally we were doing a 1940s Warner Brothers film that's just not out there at all. My guess is it'll pop up on HBO Max at some point in the future, and hopefully we'll review it then. I'm not going to reveal what it was, but that opened up a gap, and I knew I wanted to do something from the 1940s. Um, and just because of, in terms of what we've been covering lately, we haven't done a 40s film in a while. And so I hopped around a few and completely happened upon this one just arbitrarily. It was on our list, but it was one I added at some point, potentially in a fever dream late at night, just adding random espionage films to our list. And it was available everywhere. So if you haven't seen it, you can find it on pretty much any Apple movie rental site or Google Play or what have you, YouTube. Um, and so that made it very appealing for that reason alone. And uh, boy, I was... um. Not sure what we were getting. I mean, you figure 1945, it's probably got some, you know, um, propaganda elements to it, uh, which is always interesting. We talked about that when we did um, a little bit of that in Notorious as well as Ministry of Fear. Ministry of Fear much more so. Um, So I was interested in that angle, but the movie that I got was profoundly different than what I expected walking in. And yet not profound. Hmm. Well... We'll talk about that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, let's let's talk about the film itself, the synopsis for the film. Now, I would like to state that we have not been paid by the FBI to do yet. this film yet. yet. We are waiting for our <laughs> checks. Although I, I wonder where Cam got this film from. Maybe it was a secret email to our inbox uh, just suggesting it <laughs> with an unknown source. I don't know. The ghost but... of Edgar Hoover <laughs> sent the <Yeah>. email. <laughs> Yeah, he's skeletons or rat-a-tat tapping on the keyboard, sending it over to you. <laughs> um, well, here we are. The house on 92nd Street. The FBI's own tent, 
terrific story behind the protection of the atomic bomb. The US government tries to track down embedded Nazi agents in the States. I guess. that I, I read that synopsis actually before you read it. I don't normally do that, but I just was so fascinated by this movie after watching it. I dove down the uh, rabbit hole of Letterboxd reviews and um, that synopsis, I mean, I guess it sells the concept of what the movie is, but I don't even know if it makes any attempt to tell you what the movie's about, really. What the actual story is. Yeah, like, I'm not even sure I can tell you right now what the story of this movie is, but... Well, I can jump in. Yeah. IMDb has a different one, uh, which I'm sure you can see too, which I think maybe gives you the plot a little bit more, which is simply Bill Dietrich becomes a double agent for the FBI in a Nazi spy ring. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of it. That's kind of it. It's a tough one to really give a synopsis to. Like, I don't really fault anyone who has struggles to write a coherent one for this movie because it's a strange movie. Well, I mean, I don't want to jump into our thoughts on it just yet, so I'll probably keep that to myself for now. But it's... I, I don't know overall what this film is aimed at. I'm hoping you have some information on the background of the film to sort of lead us in because I don't know what this was pitched at. It came out in 1945, I think about a month after the war ended. Quite a pivotal moment in you know, yeah. history. Yeah. Post, uh, post-World post War Two, post-dropping of the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, which this film is dealing with the creation of the nuclear bomb sort of we'll get into that yes yeah, so i swear, i'm just curious as to what this film was pitched as because it was obviously made during the end of the war about the end of the war but brought out after the war there's such a, a massive change in the world in the space of those few months yeah yeah no kidding i mean i think it's really interesting we're recording this um, you know, at the beginning of June, kind of as the pandemic seems to be maybe heading towards some normalcy. You, you know, you're in um, London, I'm in Vancouver, BC. So the States is kind of ahead of us in terms of trying to return to normalcy. But it's interesting just how much things can change quickly, you know, versus like a handful of months ago, it didn't seem like this, like where we are right now in terms of vaccines and all that. This feels like a movie made at a very critical time that was released sort of tying into the moments that were going on but also like the world had changed a bit at this point as well yeah because to my knowledge my experience of propaganda films so far have been uh, well, ministry of fear um that's about it really mm. uh, yeah uh, that, that we've covered certainly and that was made during the war and and the idea of of propaganda films is to sort of you know, bring up the attitudes, make everyone happy at home, potentially drive people to sign up, uh, the armies and whatnot. Whereas this was made as a proper, I feel like it's a propaganda film personally, but brought out after the war when propaganda isn't necessarily what you need anymore. I think it's more of a propaganda film about the FBI and the importance of the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover was very um, into the idea of publicizing the FBI as the ultimate force of good. This is at the uh, mid-40s, the 1950s, where you get all of the, you know, the House of Un-American activities stuff coming in. Um, this feels like kind of a wind-up as the 
FBI is your friend running surveillance on you all the time in an effort to maintain the sanity of your world. We are the justice keepers, basically. Mm. Which is, I don't know, I, I, I definitely felt that, I, again, we're getting into what I think about the film. That whole vibe of it being a propaganda film for the FBI makes total sense because the first twenty minutes is basically a a narrative of about about the the good work the FBI is doing to uncover these Nazi spies. And to me, that's actually some of the more interesting bits of the film is actually seeing all these. And this is you know real clips of actually people at work deciphering code and you know piecing together strips of of shredded paper like we're in Argo all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and using X-ray mirrors. Yeah, which uh, they were all very amazed by. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea of a two-sided uh, mirror was, like, super exciting uh, to the filmmakers here. I can imagine the, the audience just being like, yeah, 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 yeah Money yeah, shot. Yeah. Look at that mirror. <laughs> you can see right through it. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Cam, what do you have about this film? Because I imagine there's not much being an older film. Okay, there's actually a lot. Um, <laughs> this movie... For one that is maybe faded into obscurity, there's actually quite a lot in terms of the behind the scenes on this one. So I guess the story in some ways starts with a director, Henry Hathaway. Henry Hathaway um, is someone who would uh, very much grow into a director people recognize as a, you know an important um, filmmaker of his time. He was something of a studio guy, but made a lot of recognizable movies. He directed... Um, the John Wayne version of True Grit, the original one that won uh, John Wayne Best Actor. He also did a couple other westerns. He did the John Wayne film, The Sons of Katie Elder, which was a big hit, as well as he co-directed How the West Was Won, a movie we've referenced on this show whenever we talk about uh, the box office of whatever year that was, because it was one of the biggest grossing movies of its time. Um, But at the time, Henry Hathaway was a newer filmmaker, He'd had some hits. In 1935, he had directed The Lives of a Bengal Lancer, starring Gary Cooper, which got an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture as well as Best Director. Um, But he'd mostly kicked around doing a lot of studio films, not a lot of classics on that list, heading from 1935 into 1945. But the same year, basically, as this movie, he directs a film called Knob Hill, which was a period era. <laughs> I knew you were going to love that. Uh, which was a period era saloon drama. Now, you're a big fan of saloon dramas, right? No, but I'm a big fan of Nob Hill. <laughs> Nob Hill. I'm, I'm here right now. <laughs> Coming to you live from Nob Hill. <laughs> so Hathaway had finished Nob Hill and was looking for his next project. He was working for 20th Century Fox, and he was kind of not that happy with them, but he'd heard about a new script the studio had circulating um, that concerned the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and it was set in New York. And the script had a lot of buzz around it. It was being fostered by Daryl F. Zanuck, who was the uh, founder and VP of production at 20th Century Fox. And um, this script had some excitement around it. So Hathaway um, was able to get a copy of it, and it was written by a pulp novelist named Charles G. Booth. He was a British writer who'd written some um, stories such as The The General Died at Dawn, as well as Sundown. Sundown was turned into a film later. Um, Charles G. Booth also wrote some screenplays, 
nothing particularly of note, but he was kind of a working writer at the time. So he'd come up with the story of this movie, and it seemed like something that people were very excited about. And the film had also been co-written along a certain point, and I'm not sure where. This part gets a little lost to history. There's a third writer that I will be able to explain how he joined on, but there was also a writer named Barry Lyndon um, who had done some writing on this film as well. And he had written uh, a film that I've seen that's actually pretty fun called uh, The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse from 1938. Scott, I admire your restraint for not bursting into laughter as soon as I said that title. Um, well, I, I don't know. I had my fill with knobs. So uh, <laughs> it's... I, don't know. I don't know how much uh, Clitter Hill I can take. Clitterhouse, yeah. yeah. Um... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that movie stars Edward G. Robinson as a doctor who becomes really fixated on murder and how you could get away with murder. So he becomes a criminal and it's about him trying to investigate the world of the criminal. So it... I'm glad you said he was... Uh obsessed with being a criminal and murder not obsessed with anything else mm. given the house he lives in <laughs> very true so barry linden also would go on to write war of the worlds the original sci-fi classic as well as the best picture winner greatest show on earth so he's someone who had credentials he contributed to this story as well so henry hathaway signs on and he wants to flesh this thing out a little more because this movie is actually based on something of a true story um, there was an incident called the Duquesne Spy Ring Saga. And this happened during World War II, um, earlier on. Um, and it surrounded a guy named Fritz Jobert Duquesne. He was a man of South African descent, born in East London. Um, very interesting character. He was a big game hunter. He was a German soldier, a journalist, and a spy. And he had been operating as a German spy in New York during World War II. And the FBI arrested him, as well as 32 other German spies, on charges of relaying secret information on U.S. weaponry and shipping movements to Germany. 33 members were all sentenced to an accumulated 300 years in prison. Now, at the time, J. Edgar Hoover called it the greatest spy roundup in, in U.S. history, which, I mean... Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't know how many spies they would have rounded up in, like, 1899. I don't know. It seems like this makes sense that they would uh, be able to round up a lot during World War II. Did they have spies during the Civil War? They did, and there's actually some Civil War spy films on our list to cover. But, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense to me that this was a big deal. But J. Edgar Hoover loved publicity. And um, Duquesne got 18 years, served 14, and then died two years later. Um, so... That was sort of the inspiration for this movie. And there was a man named William G. Siebold who infiltrated the group. And he is who they based the lead character in this movie on. Now, the movie's obviously playing fast and loose with the actual story. But that was the basis. So, um, Henry Hathaway is signed to do this thing. But he wants to flesh it out a little more. So he hires a writer named John Monks Jr. Who was... Um, known mostly for a couple plays he'd written. He'd done a play called Brother Rat, which was turned into a film, and he'd also written Brother Rat and a Baby. I feel like the Brother Rat series has been lost to the sands of time. I've never heard of these. I, I, I was just watching it before recording, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good stuff. You're a big Brother Rat guy. That's, that explains the shirt. I certainly am. <laughs> right now, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um. So what happened was they fleshed this out, but there was a vision for this from earlier on even, 
where they wanted this to be a docudrama. This movie was produced by Louis de Rochemont, who was a maverick filmmaker and documentarian. And so he had a vision as well of this movie being fact-based, and they wanted the uh, participation of the FBI. They wanted this to feel like audiences were getting an inside look at the FBI process. And the FBI had a bit of a shaky history with Hollywood. There had been a movie in the 30s called G-Men, starring Jimmy Cagney, that had been a hit film, and the FBI didn't really like it. They were like, that did not do um, proper service to what exactly we do. So they had kind of a little bit of a shaky um, history with Hollywood. But this was the movie that was going to kind of set it right. The FBI would be very involved. Um, FBI agents would play extras throughout the movie and play bit parts. Um, any moments where you see characters on screen doing research tasks or you're, what you were talking about, combing through newsprint, they wanted FBI agents doing this on screen. They wanted authenticity. And they also wanted to shoot it something like a documentary tying back to the producer's background. So this was kind of an experimental movie in a lot of ways, something that was trying to do things that hadn't really been done before in terms of popular mainstream entertainment. Um, they went through a few titles, and I want your opinion on each of these titles, Scott. So I got three alternate titles that they toyed with and uh, before deciding on The House on 92nd Street, which was chosen because it was originally going to be called The House on 93rd Street, but they decided that 92nd sounded better. So that's how they chose that title. Okay. Here are the three that they toyed with. Number one, now it can be told. Now what can be told? That's the question you always answer, ask back to that. So yeah, I, I understand skipping that one. Next. Private line to Bershagaden. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, someone who's German speaking could very much uh, ridicule me for that, but I did my best. I have some German friends and don't worry, they ridicule you. Perfect. Hmm. Uh, no, that that makes no sense whatsoever. Keep going. And finally, my favorite, Hamburg seven, seven, seven. I I understand the Hamburg reference. What's seven 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 in reference to? I'm not sure. Is that the house number where he did the training? It probably would have been, except they have commas after each seven. Right. Well, I I don't know if this counts, Cam, but I think I have an alternate title that might top all of them. Oh, let's hear it. Yeah. Based on the intel you've just given me, I have come up with what I think is the perfect name for this film, which is The Clit House on 92nd Knob Street. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> Here's your check, sir. <laughs> yes. A um, couple other small details I'll mention. The character of Elsa, who's the villain of the film, was originally envisioned as a man. It was going to be a male character who actually dressed as a female um, later in the film. And um, I read some studio production notes on the intention behind the original version of the character. And I'm going to let you, you know, make up for your own um, minds how you think a 1940s studio exec would talk about a male character dressing up as a female character in a film. Say no more. Exactly. The other thing I will add is, um, so this movie concerns, and you referenced this earlier, Process 97, which is the atomic bomb, which is focused on throughout this film, sometimes very vaguely. And that is because that element was added later um, to capitalize on the Hiroshima-Nagasaki bomb, which happened barely a month before this film was released. Okay, a couple of quick questions. How was it added in? Are we talking like dubbing? Well, think about it, honestly, you know, 
throughout the movie. How often do they specifically refer to the atomic bomb versus just talking about um, Process 97? Okay, well, the bomb itself is only sort of referenced in the narration stuff. It's it's Project 97 is what they say as in like in the interrogation scenes and things like that. So they don't... Okay, I suppose the actors don't ever actually mention a bomb. They just mention this project. Uh-huh, yeah. So I guess that's how they did it? Yeah, like Process 97, I think, was something that was just a vaguely sketched-in concept. It could be whatever you wanted it to be, and they changed it at the last minute to be the atomic bomb. But, I mean, this whole film hangs its hat on it being based on real events. It even screams at you at the beginning of the film in some really heavy-handed uh, you know, notes that are put up on the screen. Was the atomic bomb called Process 97? No, I don't think so. So, just, so. That was completely made up, and they just conveniently added in the nuclear bomb narration afterwards. Yeah, and there's also a card that appears mm. at the start of this movie that says, um, regarding the film, it says, it could it could not be made public until the first atomic bomb dropped on Japan. That was a very sensationalistic tag they put on the movie to make it seem like that's what they were doing all along. Okay, so really what it was is they got very lucky. In terms of having something to, I guess, make the movie feel timely that would um, grab the attention of an audience, yes, 100%. Yeah. I, I mean, not on the bomb's effects or anything like that, but yeah, they, they, they gave it something to hang its hat on. Mm-hmm. Right, like kind of a um, a relevance, yeah. Yeah, I suppose you could take out the nuclear bomb part and it would still make sense. Yes. The, 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 the pro- project or Process 97 or whatever it was called, could could just be a MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Because they allude to throughout the film things like um, rocket launchers and you know experimental guns and things like that. So process ninety seven could be anything. It's something that is going to tip the war in the favor of the Nazis, and we have to stop them from getting it. That's all that matters. It involves formulas, physicists. That's all we need to know. Okay. That actually actually makes it make more sense. Really. Yeah. The whole, because I didn't understand it being produced and then coming out exactly or more or less when the war ended. Mm-hmm. So really, but what it was was they made a film and then the war happened to end. Yeah. Right. Okay, so this movie had a budget of four hundred thousand um, dollars. It opened to one hundred twenty-five thousand and recouped its budget in three weeks. It would go on to make about two point five million dollars. Um, so it was a hit. It wasn't like one of the top earners of the year, but it was a hit movie. Um, it did make a little less than Knob Hill, I will note, uh, that Henry Hathaway, his two movies this year, Knob Hill was yes. the bigger hit, but um, this movie did well. Uh, the top three... Uh, Knob, Knob Hill was a bigger hit. Mm, yes, it was. <laughs> and the top three for this year, number one was The Bells of St. Mary's, which was a sequel to the Bing Crosby film Going My Way. Balls of St. Mary's. <laughs> Bringing the class to a uh, classic work <laughs> of cinema, Scott. <laughs> um, Keep going. I've seen The Bells of St. Mary's. It's nowhere near as good as the first one. It's pretty schmaltzy stuff. Definitely a feel-good movie for kind of that end of World War II. People are tired. So they're going to go see the Bells of St. Mary's, but a lot of it feels a little bit like a Full House episode. You've got to stop talking about the feels of the Bells of St. Mary's. 
Well, You're just lining them up for me, man. Scott, I have the perfect one lined up for you for the movie that landed then at number two. It was a film called Mom and Dad. Now, I had never heard of Mom and Dad. And by and large, it's it's kind of rare to put a movie on a top, you know, 10 list for any given year that I scratch my head going, what is this? So I looked it up on IMDb to get the synopsis. Here is the synopsis of Mom and Dad. When a high school girl gets pregnant and the boyfriend dies, the sex ed teacher shows her a film about childbirth and the dangers of venereal disease. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. The day uh, the day Nob Hill met Clit House and made a baby. I mean, wow. <laughs> that is a movie that I'm sure is very dated. <laughs> I I can you just imagine seeing that in like cinemascope? But people did. Big hit. Number two of the year. It must have just had a huge word of mouth on that one. Like, you have to have seen Mom and Dad. So, big hit. Number three, though, was Leave Her to Heaven, which is a somewhat of a precursor to movies like Fatal Attraction or Basic Instinct. It stars Gene Tierney as a woman who very much sets her sight on a uh, romantic interest she has in this man and uh, pretty much tears his life apart. It is a great film. It's on the Criterion Collection. I own a copy. If you haven't seen Lever to Heaven, people, check it out. It's fantastic. But that was sort of the top three that year. What a weird top three. <laughs> I just can't believe people actually went and saw a film about venereal disease. Yeah. Like, I know cinema was a different thing at different points in history. It wasn't necessarily like a escapist place that it is now. But, I don't know, why would you go to the cinema to... Ugh. Well, I just think at that point too, like the idea of what cinema could offer, for a lot of people it was this glimpse inside things they didn't quite understand. So you had like these... <laughs> venereal disease being one of them. But um, <laughs> you did have movies early on, like I remember there was a Best Picture nominee called The White Parade, which is about like spending time with nurses in a hospital because maybe the average person doesn't really know what they do in a hospital like movies were travelogues they were also taking you inside you know jobs and things like that you didn't really understand i just think like there was a lot of educational um style films being made and people were really into even things later down the road like um oh what is it called the marijuana film that everyone went crazy about um reefer madness yeah reefer madness like i think a lot of people watch that too it's these educational films which feel very kitschy now i just think there was like kind of like a buzz about them back in the day it would be like you wouldn't believe what they're saying about subject x we have to go see it well, i heard they did get buzzed mm. on reefer madness true true yeah i gotta stop with these puns this evening what have i been drinking i don't know i don't know so, uh. <laughs> the success of this movie actually led to a fair amount of influence. Um, the House on 92nd Street is very much seen as helping to lead to other crime docudramas, such as The Naked City and T-Men. Uh, Naked City is actually a pretty well-regarded film. I think it's on the Criterion Collection as well. Um, so, there was a trend coming out of this one of these sort of real-world-based docudramas that showed real police procedural type stuff, or in this case, FBI. That was something audiences had a little bit of a hunger for after this movie. Um, this movie also won an Oscar for writer Charles Booth for a category that no longer actually exists, but he won for Best Writing Original Story. So it was the story concept, not the script, that would have won. So 
you know, when you think of writers going in, pitching stories, coming up with a treatment, that's what he would win for, not the screenplay. So. Okay. We like your idea, just not what it became. Sure. Yeah, like the movie didn't have any other nominations. It wasn't up for acting or, you know, best screenplay or best director or anything like that. But the story, I guess, really grabbed people. Um, I just think, honestly, a lot of it was the timeliness and sort of the novelty of the FBI element. I think that probably made it stand out from the pack. Well, if this is a, a first, as you say, of a, of a docudrama, then yeah, I could definitely see it sort of leaving people with a, an impression in their minds because I'm used to seeing these. It's probably so in my notes I've commented on, like I've seen this done better. Yeah. In modern day filmmaking, at least. But if this is the first docudrama ever made, then I'd say it probably did deserve the Oscar. Yeah, yeah. It, it has that sort of crime procedural storytelling method that uh, we'll talk about how well it's aged, um, but it feels like the sort of thing we're still watching on TV. You know, even when you watch something like CSI or another crime procedural, I think a lot of the elements you're seeing there are, you know, um, kind of continuing on from what this movie was doing early, you know, way back in 1945. There was moments in this film where I was waiting for the uh, the law and order gavel noise and dung, dung, <laughs> just, just to pivot in between the rations. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Henry Hathaway was a good filmmaker, so... He was someone who, he wasn't like a kind of like a studio hack. He was someone with some real credentials. He was a craftsman. Um, so it's not like he would have made this to be something clunky at the time. But again, we'll talk about how well it's aged. Well, that's that's probably where our discussion will lead. I and mean, we've spoken about Fritz Lang before and, and my unfortunate experience with Metropolis. But Metropolis informed science fiction cinema and in some ways still does. Yeah. Now that has aged pretty badly i would say at times in terms of the narrative the narrative is and i don't even know how much to blame actually on metropolis because the movie has been compromised by missing sections and i believe Mm. there is a a fairly new restored version that i haven't watched i need to track it down but it was a movie that for many years people were seeing in cut to pieces versions so yeah well i mean i struggled when i watched it but you can tell the signature is there that 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 is then you know grown on the the seed has been planted by that film so maybe i have to appreciate it from that angle when we talk about this film it is weird to say that it's an oscar winning film though it is very strange um we did argo fairly recently on the show uh which was a best picture winner and now we have another oscar winner so uh the prestige of this podcast is being lifted up entry by entry we're moving on up to 92nd street that's right. And my final note, and this one I kind of love, actually. Actor Lloyd Nolan, who shows up as Inspector George A. Briggs in this film, reprised that character. He actually appeared again. This character, played by this actor, showed up in the 1947 film The Street With No Name, which was another crime film. Not the exact same type of film, but... If, you know, those of you out there who are completists or want to continue the adventures of Inspector Briggs, check out The Street With No Name. I think I'm going to. Is, is this another one of your, like, Condor Man comic follow-throughs? Like, I'm yeah. never going to watch it, but you will. I will. I, I will totally watch The Street With No Name. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll leave you to spin off into Brig cards. I have so much to say about uh, George Briggs in this movie. Like, so much to say. So, uh, that wraps up my behind-the-scenes on this movie, which... Again, like when I sat down to do this one, 
sometimes when I've done movies from the 40s or 30s, it can be tough if you're not dealing with like a pictures. Um, you know, when you're doing notes on, uh, you know, like an old Hitchcock film, 39 Steps, there's tons of information to draw upon. But a lot of times when you're dealing with more obscure things or even like actually Ministry of Fear, uh, much tougher to come across really strong behind the scenes. This movie was a treasure trove. Like those of you out there who are interested in delving into the world of this film, head over to, you know, Turner Classic Movies. They've got articles and uh, scholarly essays about this film. There's a lot out there on 92nd Street if you dig for it. And a lot of it's really interesting and has real world connotations involving, you know, the real spiring and World War II uh, um, uh, events and everything that make it historically interesting as well. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think just luck of the draw. Like this movie is just was doing some things that grabbed the attention. It had very notable people, you know, attached. We've done movies in the past where um, the movie may have been good, but the people attached to it didn't really talk about it or didn't have rich careers beyond that film. And this is one where you had some real heavyweights of Hollywood behind the scenes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm I'm eager to pivot into our review because as this was kind of like a, an emergency ripcord pick a film scenario, we haven't really discussed it leading into it. So I, I think I'd like you to lead us off, Cam, as this is your pick. What do you think of The House on 92nd Street? Okay, I want to preface this with actually you texted me last night. I watched it quite late at night. About I started, I think, 1130 in the evening. Um, but you texted me before I sat down and pressed play saying, have you watched the film yet? And you don't normally do that. I rarely ever get a text saying like, oh, have you watched Arman Flint yet? Or, you know, what have you, Argo? But this one, I was like, well, that's curious. And then you made a reference and said like, I would like to watch this movie with a running commentary from you or something like that. Um, and I was like, oh, what am I in for? And... I'd done the research in advance, a lot of it, so I kind of knew what to expect. But this is a movie that is woefully dated. Like, woefully. We have talked about movies from earlier on. Mata Hari, 39 Steps. Those movies have aged far, far better as entertainments than this thing. But I found this movie kind of a hoot to watch in that it's so, so earnest. Painfully earnest about its story. And the story is not that compelling. I think if you actually start to remove the narration, the um, very, very heavy-handed FBI participation, there's nothing to this movie. Like, it doesn't have a compelling story to tell whatsoever. This movie is entirely based on, look at what the FBI is doing. Isn't it incredible? They're showing you actual footage they took. Just shooting random people walk in front of the German embassy in New York. And it's like, this is crazy. I'm watching, like, surveillance footage from 1940s. So, like, as a historical document, I found this movie fascinating. I was very thankful. It was 88 minutes. That was the perfect amount of time. The acting across the board was stiff as a plank. Like, there was a point where I made a note uh, in reference to the lead character, uh, Bill Dietrich, who we follow, played by uh, William Ithe. Um, I made a note that said, imagine if you had the movie The Departed, set it during World War II, and replaced DiCaprio with a plank of wood. 
that is what this movie is. It's a, um, you know, covert mission, undercover guy who's the most boring dude in the room. And honestly, I just found myself more won over by the novelty of the movie. Like, that's what made me interested in it. But as a piece of dramatic filmmaking, it's it's aged into just absolute decrepitude. Like, there's nothing left to really take in other than the... Uh, you know the technical skill that it's that was being shown at the time that again we can talk about how well that's aged um but it's a movie that's just interesting more in concept than in what it actually is uh, usually i'll try and find something to nitpick about what you say with the film but i really do agree with you i i wrote down this is a film of two halves there's a cool, not necessarily as in like time-wise, but there's half of the film that is cool scenes of what happens with investigations, you know, all the behind-the-scenes stuff, double-sided mirrors, real FBI agents, and, and a, more of a documentary feel, something like you would see on the Discovery Channel. That was interesting. That is the sort of thing I would watch. And then you get put into this spy story, which is actually the story of the film. And as you said, You've got a bunch of wooden actors. Now, you've got Leo G. Carroll in here. Spy Hard's veteran, Leo G. Carroll. And even he can't bring the level of acting up. Even he feels like he's bored the entire way through. So, you've got nothing to latch onto in terms of a story. You don't particularly care. And you don't really give a monkeys about the information they're trying to protect. And you've got this kind of... So you've got this uh, protagonist who is a double agent, uh, American-German, uh, Bill Dietrich. And he... I, some of the worst acting I've ever seen. <laughs> and I've seen The Room. Yeah, I've seen The Room with Tommy Wiseau in The Room with me. <laughs> and this is up there. I'm sorry, William Eath. <laughs> the thing about Tommy Wiseau is, though, he goes for it. Like, when you see him in a movie, uh, if you watch The Room, he is up one side and down the other. Like, he is over the top. He's crazy. He has unconventional approaches to dialogue. Very strange and very unselfconscious. Whereas, this is one of the really interesting elements of this movie, which is that it's going for realism. And it's going for the docudrama approach. Like, you are watching real events happen. Yes, it's actors and everything, but we want the audience to think they're watching a documentary, essentially. And it seems like, in this era, what that meant was, be really stiff. If you are playing a real person, walk around like you are a zombie. Like you don't have any sort of personality. You do not have any sort of spontaneity. You talk in a very measured tone and talk, like basically give out these very like perfunctory sentences it doesn't feel real. It feels very stilted and awkward. And it's the approach of the time. And it's all over this movie. Like, it is all over that lead character of Bill Dietrich. And it extends to pretty much everyone else. Um, except for my hero of the movie, which, uh, you know, I, I just have to say, Inspector Briggs. I, I want to talk more, maybe at length about him. But he was gold. I loved him so much. But... Yeah, Dietrich and so many of the other, you know, German agents around him. Um, they are all just, I mean, good lord. Good lord. Like, there is not a pulse among them. I did not steal the plans. I did not steal them. I did not. <laughs> like, that's more interesting. 
already. I get it. Um, yeah, it's it's a real shame. I I was thinking about. I don't know if there's something they do with it in in Canada or North America, but we have a, a show here called Crime Stoppers, and basically they reenact real crimes to try and get witnesses to call in or and that sort of thing. So they get actors usually to portray real people getting attacked or you know getting robbed, etc. etc. But they're playing it with real emotions and how someone would really react. But you're not taking that as a piece of entertainment. You're watching it as a factual thing. If that's what this was, it was probably okay. But this is pictures of film, an entertaining spy story. Um, so people just standing around just like... I, I was surprised that one of the actors didn't just like accidentally mug at the camera. Mm. Just, just and, or like a boom would just sort of fall into the shot. Like It, it felt that low-budget am-dram kind of performances... And as I said, Leo G. Carroll's here. And it, it literally, I felt like it was on a, a rickety stage in the middle of a, a little town in a suburban place in England. Yeah, well, you, you know, you watch, you know, 39 Steps from a handful of years earlier. And, like, there's so much personality to each character. And the thing is, like, people have different rhythms to their speech. Like, not every person sounds the same. You know, anyone listening to this podcast is not going to mix up probably your voice with mine. Um, this movie, though, follows, I think, a trend of the time that's very frustrating is that they write every character to sound exactly the same. Um, there's a little bit of difference. You know, I, I do think like, um, you know, Cian Hasso, who plays Elsa, the villain of the movie, like maybe she has a little more of a spark to her. But a lot of the characters all sound very flat and monotone. And no one is really the excitable one in the room. No one is the mysterious, quiet one. They all kind of just feel very like... It's it's like um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and it's just a group of pod people all having a conversation. Yeah, there's no one that really like breaks out from the group. I know you want to talk about Inspector Briggs, but I have a feeling that's probably more of a taking a few shots across the bow at Inspector Briggs. He's not really jumping out to you as an uh, Oscar-winning performance. <laughs> and even in bad movies, you have someone you can look at as entertainment. Uh, Tommy Wiseau, back again. Um, think of something a bit more uh, up-to-date. Tomorrow Never Dies. Okay, it's uh, it's not the best Bond film, but you've got you know Jonathan Price mugging his way through it in a really entertaining way. And he's probably the best thing about the film. There's no Jonathan Price performance in here. There's nothing to to latch onto to carry you through. It's just these really interesting narration sections and then some really badly acted scenes and then some narration wrapping up. Yeah. Well, you know what? Why don't we just kind of mention as well, like I, I've referenced this movie earlier, Argo in some ways is a descendant of a movie like this. Like it is a docudrama telling a real world event. It's a spy story. And you look at how much personality each of those characters has. And I am sure they did extensive research on each of the individuals they were portraying. They found the way to get them across on screen that they were memorable. Like, you want to care about these people. And they are based on real people. So, like, I don't understand why the approach here is, like, we want all these characters to be thoroughly uninteresting and flat. When, don't you want the audience to care? Like, Bill Dietrich... Shouldn't the audience feel fear, you know, when he's getting it over his head? There's a whole sequence where they're going to, you know, where they're injecting him with, like, truth serum, which I can only imagine in 1945 or whatever year this was, um, 
what a truth serum was they were injecting into you. God knows, my God, it must have been a nightmare. But there should be moments where you're genuinely on the edge of your seat. And a lot of people point to old movies and go like, well, how much tension can there really be? But Ministry of Fear, uh, 39 Steps, they had tension. Matahari had some tension. There's moments mm. where you're like kind of leaning forward, like, okay, how are they going to get out of this? This movie doesn't have any of that. Like, I couldn't have cared what happened to Bill Dietrich in that, in that whole finale, even though some of it was really well shot. Do you know, I, it just sprung to my mind, it's not in my notes, but it feels like this film is uh, a documentary. Yeah. In the sense of they've got the real people to play themselves in a reenactment of the story. Right. So, like, you know how you, can, you can't really pretend to be yourself, so you become like this wooden, heady version of what you think you are? Um, and like you have to try and reenact your movements and you become really robotic. I feel like that's what they're going for. Did you ever see um, the Clint Eastwood film 1517 to Paris from a couple years ago? No. no. Okay, it was about that, um, the, the three uh, American soldiers who thwarted the terrorist attack on the train. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so that movie, I think, is horrible. Um, some people were fans of it, but I think it was pretty terrible in that they cast the real soldiers as the three leads of the movie and then had them restage scenes where they're just hanging out, joking around and going on a European vacation. And it feels like pod people again, like it doesn't feel like, um, you know, characters going through an actual experience as it's happening. It feels like a really stilted recreation and it didn't work there. And this was an extra step more awkward because we're dealing with, um, a new approach to this type of filmmaking. So they got to work out the kinks. They're not there yet. This is early on. So it's kind of an unformed concept so far. And we're watching actors try to do this in a style of acting that just does not work at all. It's not figured out at all. So, you know, 15, 17, I thought was terrible. This movie I found more watchable by a considerable margin. Um, but it does have that same sort of like distance of this doesn't feel like real life. This feels, as you said awkward to watch people recreate the story of their life it's like they're caricatures of themselves but not interesting caricatures yeah um i will send some praise to the film i do like the behind the scenes how the sausage was made investigation work done by i'm guessing the real fbi people that that was kind of cool to see and the the, whilst i found the narration to be mostly intrusive (laughs) Because it would just, it, they would use it to like almost uh, scream wipe like the Star Wars films would. Yeah. Um, I did enjoy seeing the behind the scenes of the FBI. I thought that was quite cool. And it, it, in that sense, it probably does work as a propaganda film for them. But barring that, I, I couldn't find anything to latch onto. But I am curious to hear about your thoughts on Inspector Briggs. Okay. I thought Inspector Briggs was amazing. I began to fall in love with this character because he was so dull. Like, imagine you made, you're kind of, he's like the Dick Tracy of this movie. If you ever think of like the old Dick Tracy, uh, you know, cartoons or whatever, Dick Tracy's in the office and he's kind of this hard ass holding up, you know, justice in the American way and all this sort of stuff. Um, I'm a fan of like that Dick Tracy world. It's a lot of fun. And you have Briggs, who kind of plays the same role. He's the tough-talking inspector in charge of the case. He's the one interrogating people. But he has zero charisma whatsoever. 
he's all you know a jaw like a you know a um, square jaw and uh, rigid you know attitude and he's gonna get the job done but in a totally uninteresting way and I just began to be more and more pulled in by just how kind of like how square this character was I, I really did enjoy him in a somewhat ironic way but also by the end everything he was doing in his hip to be square style was really working for me <laughs> I wish I could I could send the praise to him. I just found him to be completely vanilla. Exactly. It's the vanilla. It's the perfect, like, it is the personification of vanilla. And I kind of admired that. Like, it didn't feel boring. It felt like it was so vanilla. It couldn't be more vanilla. And somehow that made it cool. <laughs> you, you seem to be acting like that was a choice by the actor. I'm not convinced it was. But it worked for me, damn it. <laughs> I want the Briggs Cinematic Universe. <laughs> the BCU. There we go. <laughs> but... You're probably the only person to ever, ever ask for that. But that's fine. That's fine. He has some authority. You know, I, I kind of dug it. But that you get so many scenes of him just in the office. And he is your kind of your focal point for all the FBI stuff. And I just love scenes where he would be like turning to someone and be like, you know, what is the update on the fingerprints? And then an awkward FBI agent would turn around and be like, the result is we have a suspect. <laughs> and Briggs would be like, okay, good news. Let's move. <laughs> it is exactly what you say when you say about pod people. And that's, that's why I refer to it as like amateur dramatics. Mm. It feels like people who are just doing it for a school play. It's like they're doing a nativity scene or something. Yeah, away in a manger. Um, it's a real shame that this film is headed up with. I, I mean, he's probably the worst actor I've seen since Hayden Christensen, <laughs> uh, who's coming back as Darth Vader. Apparently, no idea why. Maybe because they can put him in a mask. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, William Eth or Ethy Eth, I think it is. I, I can't imagine he went on to do much else because he is a charisma vacuum in this film. Um, he didn't do a lot after this. Well, you know, he did a number of movies that are actually kind of acclaimed. He had like bit parts and things like the Oxbow Incident, which is a really good Western. Um, but not a lot. Some TV here and there. Although we should note he died very young. He died at the age of 38. So, you know, yeah. I mean... I'm just saying, you're older than 38, and you have no acting experience. I think you could probably do this better. But how much of this is also the director? I mean, I'm not, like, arguing that, um, you know, William Ith was, like, the greatest actor who ever lived, like, the Laurence Olivier of his time or anything like that. Although I think Laurence Olivier was of that time. But nonetheless, the second Laurence <laughs> Olivier. Um, I'm not saying that at all, but I just wonder how much was the direction being like, no, no, play it down down realistic no energy like remove that sort of um the inflections from your voice we want this to be real and it's just not real it's the 1945 concept of what is real i don't know if i could blame it on that i think there's some other bits and bobs of this film that may be borderline on interesting in terms of direction mm -hmm. there's i mean this is more of a cinematography thing but there's one shot i remember where he goes to the dress store run by Elsa Gebhardt, and you see her in the reflection. 
and then like the camera sort of pans around to see her and him walking up. I think that was actually a really nice shot. Yeah. Uh, probably the only good shot in the entire film. Yeah. But uh, I, maybe that's more cinematography than director. I don't know. Well, I I will say like a lot of the actors reminded me of there's you know stories like relating to um, Stanley Kubrick or David Fincher, where you hear about how you know they'll have an actor do like ninety nine takes of an insignificant moment or a line of dialogue, something like that. And the whole reason they do that is because they want the actors to stop acting, mm. and essentially it just becomes natural. They are just at a certain point going through the motion, so it becomes actual behavior they're filming as opposed to a performance. And I'm not saying they made any of the actors do 99 takes here, but it feels like they did. <laughs> the energy is gone. <laughs> oh yeah, there's definitely no energy in the room, and that I mean I keep harkening back on to Leo G. Carroll, but he is an actor I know couldn't deliver yeah so what they did to make him a complete square i don't know whether they maybe the actors weren't paid enough the only thing i can think about as well is if this was made during wartime were a lot of the main actors in hollywood you know enlisted yeah i mean a number of them were for sure quite a few um and as well as directors and various other filmmakers were working for the war effort um, but it was actually intended right from the start. They wanted to cast unknowns here to have more of a sense of realism. This is early in Leo G. Carroll's film career, relatively. He doesn't do North by Northwest for like another decade. So, um, he would have been someone who I'm sure was kind of a known character actor, but it's not like he's, you know, the, um, co-star on the Man from Uncle TV show or anything like that. He's someone who's, you know, a, a working actor. Okay. Well, one other thing I I had a problem with with this film is its patriotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we, we made some jokes at the top of the show about it being sponsored by the FBI and stuff like that, but this is a this is a movie that actually manages to work in the national anthem into its own score. Yeah. Uh, I I felt that was a little bit egregious for a film that's meant to have international distribution. Uh, maybe it was just aimed at an American audience when it was put out. That's fair enough. Yeah, it would have been, I think, because, I mean, I don't know that movie theaters were doing particularly well in a lot of Europe during World War II. Um, I think this would be very much a American audience film, and they wouldn't be worried about opening movies, say, in China or anything, I, territories like that in, in these days. I, I suppose I, I can understand it from that point, but as a as a surly Brit I uh, I don't want to get up to the national anthem, uh, and so when they blare it into my speakers, I I get kind of I kind of turn my nose up a little bit, really. There's so much darkness to this movie, entirely unintended. Um, this movie sees itself as very much a raw raw for the FBI. Like we are the heroes. We have all these scenes of FBI agents filming the public through windows, you know, hiding in cars, just filming people working at like a factory and it's a lot of it is real footage that they were taking we see scenes where the fbi is watching footage of all this stuff to which i made a note how boring would it be to sit and watch all that footage my god you'd be earning those paychecks there's a worse fbi job i wrote down oh what's that the lipstick matcher oh yeah yeah having to investigate the yeah the brand of lipstick that a uh, spy is using and track it back to her yeah totally that's very boring but um this movie sees itself as very much, um, you know, um, 
tooting the horn for the hardworking people of the FBI. It doesn't recognize the issues that authority would bring later. Like the House of Un-American Activity stuff was a nightmare and led to a lot of dark chapters in that country. And the FBI played a very large role and Hoover, his investigations into people. Um, none of that is acknowledged in this movie. Obviously it has FBI oversight, but it also seems oblivious to a lot of what it's saying because you have, you know, them talking about the Hiroshima bomb. They talk about rounding up enemy agents and putting them in internment camps. And a lot of this is actually Japanese citizens we see on screen. This movie, I mean, it's made in 1945. This movie has absolutely no understanding of the legacy the internment camps would have in the future and how it would become a very dark chapter in American history. This movie sees it as a triumph and presents it as such, being completely oblivious to how history is going to look back on that story. So the movie becomes very fascinating in that way, in that it is a propaganda film released at a very crucial moment in history that doesn't understand the history um, that's going to be told later down the road. Well, I mean, you can't make films with future knowledge. No. But um, but this is one of the questions I had that I was going to pivot onto, is I don't know who they made this film for, because it doesn't really feel like a um, propaganda film as I know it. And apart from to try and get people to, to head down to Quantico to sign up, I don't know what it was really aiming for. And so I suppose, you know, my question is, well, there's two questions, but the first one is, if this is based on real events, loosely, yeah, it, is this how you should portray it? Because I think there's actually quite a cool story in here, if you dig down. But I, if I was given this story and I was a screenwriter or I was a director, I, I would not, you know, smother it with narration and, and clips of FBI stuff. So, so why was it pieced together like this? I don't understand who this film was for. Um, so I think part one to your question, um, I think this movie was an attempt also to establish the FBI as a presence that the American people could rely on. Because they're in a very fragile state at the end of World War II and they want to say, don't worry, the FBI is in charge and they are looking after you, you're going to be okay. I think they want you to look at the FBI in that light. To Your takeaway is, we're okay, our life can go forward because the FBI is on the watch for any insurgents and enemy agents that could compromise our safety. So I think that's part of it. But also, um, in terms of the real world story. I agree with you. Like, I think the Duquesne spiring, you could probably make a really great movie about that. Now I, that's something that you could make maybe a really good Netflix documentary series about, um, you know, maybe a two and a half hour long drama or something you would see in a, you know, in a theater. Uh, this is not really the way to translate it, but I also think they wanted tra to translate a very clear cut raw, raw for the FBI story. So I think they filed down any complications to the real stories to maybe what went on. They made it very black and white. Um, is it interesting for an audience now? No. But maybe at the time they would look at this and be like, well, they wouldn't have the media literacy that people do now. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I agree with you. I think this would make a really interesting Netflix movie. Maybe not a cinematic release but i think there's a story in here that could be quite interesting much like the courier which we spoke about recently mm -hmm. you know 
spy stories of this level can can be interesting and can be portrayed in in a in a, uh, in a way that would engage the audience. But this is the opposite of that. This this actively seeks to push people away. I feel like, and it feels very clunky to watch it now because. As if the patriotic stuff and the FBI cheerleading isn't enough to make people kind of roll their eyes. Um, the film craft. There's shots in here that are nice. There's, I thought the actually um, attack on the villains at the end where they're firing gas canisters through the windows. Like that was pretty effectively shot. But sure. a lot of it's very clunky. And a lot of it is we want this to feel like cameras capturing real life. But... We are a long ways away from Paul Greengrass doing like United 93 or, or the work he would obviously, you know, tie into the Bourne stuff. It does not have that sort of life to it, that cinema verite quality, which didn't even really exist in 1945 in popular filmmaking. Um, so you get a lot of awkwardly framed shots, like moments where like an actor stands up and they're like heads cut off or something in the frame. And it's to make it look like you're watching you know, I guess documentary footage or something, but it just looks clunky and awkward as opposed to documentary footage. And I think a lot of that also just goes to how the actors are, are portraying the characters. There's a scene where uh, Bill Dietrich meets the rest of the German spy ring in the uh, dress store. Yeah. Um, and they're all sort of sat around this little office at the back and they just don't move. Mm-hmm. Like, they're all just either sat in their chairs or stood up, staring at each other for about five minutes, just talking. No one moves to sit down. It's a, it's like a steady shot. The camera is just on them the entire time. It doesn't, like, cut to other people's faces particularly often, once or twice. Um, and you just think, like, this, is, this isn't real. But this whole film hinges on it being a real story. Yeah. Um, but maybe, as you say, maybe people's uh, experience with film was... was uh, I don't know. Maybe they weren't expecting as much back in 1945. I just think also this is, it's maybe a little trendy. Like it kicks off a trend, right? And I think there's good films that come out of that trend, but this isn't held up as one of the gems of those films. And I just wonder if at the time it felt new and fresh, felt different from the other stuff you'd be seeing at that time at the multiplex or not even multiplex at the theater. Um, And uh, it, you know, it was for its time. Back then, they would have thought, oh, this is interesting. I'm I'm getting an inside look at the FBI, and I'm sure the FBI is something that people are talking a lot about. Um, you know, we're only, we're, I guess, you know, 20 years past the Chicago crime battles and everything against the Capone um, crime syndicate. But the FBI is something that people see as heroes a lot of the time. You have all the Elliot Ness stuff and all the stories coming out of that and then continuing on here. Um, I think people would have just had an interest. Whereas nowadays, obviously uh, we have much more of a complex relationship with the FBI Um, shows like the X-Files our heroes are FBI agents, but the show is very much about exposing the dirty dealings of the FBI and the um, conspiracies and um, many of the historical issues that they've been tied to. This movie doesn't have any of that perspective and doesn't want to. It's just, hey, audience, come hang out with the FBI for the day. Yeah. Well, I did have one more question, and this is really about the spy story underneath everything here. And there is a there is a twist in this film. Uh, uh, it, there's this character, this elusive Mr. Christopher, 
who holds the power to the German spy ring in, in New York or, or in America, by the sounds of it. And you're, you're fed these red herrings as to who is Mr. Christopher. But it's, an, it's revealed at the end that uh, Elsa, Gert, uh, Elsa Gebhardt's character is basically cross-dressing as a man to be Mr. Christopher. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't see that coming. Did you? Uh, yes, but only because I'd done some research in advance. Um, so yeah, I did, but, um, she was a very unconvincing man when they showed her on screen. Um, but it was kind of a fun little twist. I don't know that it would have been shocking in those days, because I think there'd probably been movies that had pulled this sort of twist, but, um, it was fun to see. It gave the movie... I think maybe a spark of life that just wasn't there any other time. Yeah, it, it couldn't hang its hat on that alone. Um, I was convinced it was Leo G. Carroll, which I think is what the film was trying to get you to think it was for a good time. Yeah. Uh, and then when I saw her disappear into the back and, and become Mr. Christopher, I was actually, okay. It, it wasn't a cloak and dagger level of uh, seeing the glove come off and reveal the two fingers missing. Sure. That, that's still one of my favorite moments. Uh, but... Uh, it surprised me at least, and that that whole ending with the assault on the uh, Nazi base, well, Nazi head hideout, I suppose is the correct term, was quite an interesting sequence as well. But it, it definitely wasn't enough to salvage the film for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I completely understand. Um, there was little bits though that it's just like it would kind of make me smile moments where I would just go, "Oh, that's kind of fun," like delving into the world of the spy stuff because i don't think the spy story is interesting i don't think they have a compelling spy story on screen everything is propped up with um narration they do not have a story here they just have a narrator telling you how dramatic things are without actually showing you anything dramatic really happening on screen um it's like the classic case of the you know show don't tell um being uh very much ignored but there was moments where they talk about how the uh, Nazi spies are using like a memory artist to memorize the formulas for process 97 to smuggle it out. And I couldn't help but think of Mr. Memory in the 39 steps. Uh, so I enjoyed stuff like that. I also very much enjoyed when they introduced Arthur C. Appleton, physicist. <laughs> <laughs> a man who does nothing. They give him this whole introduction and you're like, okay, Arthur C. Appleton, physicist. Let's see what you're going to do. And he proceeds to do nothing of interest in the movie. Well, he's the guy who, um, forgive me if I'm wrong, but he says he'll manipulate the data to throw the Nazis off, right? Yeah. I was convinced that was a real person, not an actor. Yeah. Just from the way they like the way they were talking in the scene, it just felt really unnatural. And it didn't even look like... The way the shot was framed, and I know you and I can see each other currently, but like... Uh, you could see Inspector Briggs kind of talking at him whilst kind of looking directly down the camera, whereas this guy was, his face was to the left, to the, so that you could see half of his face, and he would never really look like he was acting to Inspector Briggs or to the camera. He was just saying his lines as if he was almost reading off the table and looking forwards. And so I was convinced that was a real professor or something like that. Probably. He probably was a real physicist. They dredged up for this, uh... I'm just uh, scrolling through the um, through the um, cast list on IMDb, and uh, I don't know, I'm not seeing him. Oh, there he is. Uh, oh, he actually was played by a guy named Jack McKee, 
But, um, I don't know, maybe Jack McKee was a uh, real scientist. Um, who knows? No, he popped up in a couple bit parts, but he wasn't really an actor. He was a reporter in the prologue of a movie called Gang War and district attorney in a movie called Polygamy. Wow, that sounds like something from 1936. So, I, I don't know who this guy was, but Arthur C. Appleton, character for the ages, new icon, new mascot for Spy Hearts podcast. <laughs> Move over, Oromov. <laughs> who wins the Oromov Award in this movie? It's kind of hard to tell they're sweating because no one's acting hard enough to be sweaty. Maybe the narrator. Oh, yeah, because it is overdone narration to the nth degree. Like, whenever you watch an old Simpsons episode where they show, like, a dated educational video or something and you have that really cornball narration, that is going through this entire movie. Um, it's crazy. Have you ever seen the movie um, The Beast of Yucca Flats? No. Okay, it's a... um really bad really bad horror movie from i think the 50s i'm pretty sure it has that whole atomic edge to it about a mutant that happens in the yucca flats and pursues you know some people uh it's like a um bargain basement production but they didn't shoot any dialogue for the movie so the whole thing is done in narration and whoever did the narration i'm not even sure they ever watched the movie because it feels like they're just waxing poetic about whatever pops into their head in the moment it does not line up with half of what's going on on screen. It's insane. I recommend people watch it. Um, you know, Next time you want to have a bad movie night, sit down and watch The Beast of Yucca Flats because it is comic gold. Um, but a lot of that sort of awkward narration feels like the same thing you're getting here. Just this one's a little more on point in terms of what you're actually seeing on screen. I, sw- I mean, I- I've not got really much more to say about this film in particular. Yeah. But, but I don't want to jump into the knockers just yet. I just don't know whether I... I didn't enjoy watching this film. That's that's evident from our chat. I'm not sure whether it was necessarily a bad film of its time. I, I find it hard to contextualise it for someone sitting in a theatre in 1945. Because this obviously did well. Yeah. I mean, then again, this is the same year the movie about venereal diseases came second. So maybe everyone's taste in 1945 was absolute, you know, venereal disease. Um... But I just don't know whether this is a good film or not. I didn't enjoy it, so maybe to me it's not. But is is there merit in here, Cam? Historically, yes. I think film scholars would probably have fun taking it apart piece by piece and looking at it as an early example of the docudrama. But for a general audience wanting to watch a spy film, hells no. There's nothing here whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, that would be my answer to that. <laughs> Well, uh, that's three hours of my life. Thank you, Spy Hards. What was it like the second time through? It's actually really interesting, because usually I will always say my second time through helped. Like, my expectations were put away in the first one, I just opened myself up in the second viewing and whatnot. But because this film had nothing to offer in terms of plot or acting, the intrigue was there in the first one because it was kind of like oh this is like a docudrama this is quite interesting for the time i'm seeing these bits the 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 fbi stuff's kind of interesting yeah but seeing that twice is useless so the second viewing was completely useless what's the point in watching a documentary twice you can't learn the same thing twice right yeah well you can but you know what i mean like it, there, there's no value in re-watching this film there's barely any value in watching it at all I would say, though, anyone interested in 
docudramas about criminal investigation of this sort of era. Movies that are a little clunky, but maybe have a little bit of a glimpse at that behind the scenes kind of stuff. There's actually one, I'm not going to say it's great, but it was interesting, um, called The Tattooed Stranger I watched a while back. And it's about the implementation of advanced FBI techniques for criminal investigation. In that film, they find a body in a car, and it's about how they actually track um, who this person was, who murdered them. And it's, you know, at this point, they're fascinated by fingerprints, for example. And the movie has that kind of, like, fly-on-the-wall, can-you-believe-what-you're-seeing relating to, I think, um, an element of investigation that's a little more interesting to wrap your head around and at least easier for people to wrap their heads around it than what this movie's doing. Like, a lot of what it is doing is showing basic things about, like, uh, wiretapping and uh, radio communication, but I don't know that that's interesting to watch as much. And it's tougher to kind of draw the conclusions as to how the radio signal stuff leads to an outcome for audiences now. I think the um, uh, Tattooed Stranger is a little more watchable. Okay. I You just reminded me of the, the scene where uh, Dietrich is caught by the spies because of the size of his antenna is not big enough. Mm. I, I, was that supposed to be a tense moment? Because there was no energy in that room. Uh, no, no, I don't think there was any tension whatsoever. Maybe it was supposed to be because, again, you're watching reality unfold before you. Yeah, people in 1945 had no standards for cinema. Well, here's the question. Is this the most dated movie we've covered on the show? Yes. I don't have to think about it. I would sooner... I've said to you before, and I've gone on record, I struggle with older films. Hmm. I'm a I'm a child of the late 80s. I'm used to popcorn action cinema. I can stretch myself maybe to a David Lynch. You know, I can push my boundaries to, you know, Fincher, maybe Cronenberg if I have to, something like that. Or, you know, Hitchcock is enough to keep me going because he's a very inventive filmmaker. Yeah. Um, And, and, and like, Matahari, even I, I found things to enjoy in that. Yeah. We still talk about that sacred candle. Sure. Yeah. But... This film has no redeeming qualities for me. None whatsoever. When we started this podcast, and we had a lot of movies on the list from, you know, the 30s, 40s, um, and you're not someone who watches a lot of older films, was this movie sort of what you had in mind that you'd be getting from those? Like, is this what you more imagined 1930s, 40s movies to be? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Like nothing to get from it wooden acting no pacing no thrills which is why i was pleasantly surprised by like the 39 steps yeah a thrilling film it kept you on the edge of your seat despite it being made what 15 years before this uh 39 steps it's about a decade before okay sure but that's that's 10 years yeah life in the it changes a lot in 10 years yeah um and so yeah i was just expecting boring boring films and look cam you delivered <laughs> well you, you i said on the ipcris you said on the ipcris file you want boring give me boring well you finally gave me boring thank you very much <laughs> and boring's name is inspector george a briggs <laughs> Hero. <laughs> uh, we know what's inside the house on 92nd Street. 
nothing at all. Um, I did l- always laugh too whenever they talked about the Christopher case, the Christopher case, the Christopher case throughout this movie. You could make a drinking game out of how many times they said the Christopher case. And um, my God, when it was like, and thus the Christopher case ended, I was like, hells, yeah. <laughs> I want that narration guy, I'm sure he's dead now, to just record our intro or something. That guy must have done narration on like everything in that era. He just has that voice. I'm like, I'm sure this guy has narrated everything. He's got that trailer voice. Like nowadays, they're all like, in a world where blah blah blah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. He he has a he has the right voice for doing it. Um. He he was working overtime, so he wins out over a mother ward. Absolutely. <laughs> War is thought, and thought is information. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. Okay, Cam, it's time I asked you a question. And that question is, why have you stolen three hours from my life? No. (laughs) That question is, is the house on 92nd Street making the illustrious knock list? (laughs) Um, I was tempted to put it on purely for Briggs, who is the greatest man who ever lived. Uh, No, this is a big flat no for me. Um... There's just some movies that really have no reason to exist beyond scholarly research. This is one of those movies. Like, I think, you know, film students might find it interesting. But as an entertainment, it's dead on arrival now. It's just interesting as a piece of propaganda. And to remind you of an era where, you know, Hoover and sort of the public relations of the FBI was all about kind of getting in front of the public and presenting itself as heroes. Like, in terms of being FBI propaganda, interesting. As a dramatic spy story, there's absolutely nothing here whatsoever. So, it is a skip for spy fans and a, uh, I don't know, I guess I recommend for FBI propaganda fans. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm on the same page. I won't, I won't draw it out. It's a no from me. As someone, I mean, you know, Cam, as I've discussed in the past, you are, you know, well-versed in film. You've been studying film for a very long time. Um, You've been writing reviews for films for a very long time as well. You might be able to find something in this you can take from it, just from a a scholarly perspective, as you say. I have none of those uh, particular (laughs) set of skills. I just watch films, and this had absolutely nothing for me. (laughs) <laughs> and so I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> um, which would you rather watch again? This or Little Drummer Girl? The uh, oh. oh that's a, that's an absolute that's a real toughie. Like if you said this or Men in Black Two, I'd choose Men in Black Two. Yeah. Little Drummer Girl though was a painful two hours uh, of a lot of crying. <laughs> At least this. At least this was quicker. I, I'd rather watch this again because it's quicker than Little Drama Girl. Right. Yeah. It's a movie like this is kind of painless for me to watch. Um, the runtime contributes a great deal. Had this movie been two hours, I don't think I would have had maybe the sense of humor about it that I do now. But um, it was a it was a curiosity for me. I'll say that. Like it was a curiosity that I'm glad I watched. And there's no way in hell I'll ever watch it again. Well, I, I need to ask you before we move on. Is there another list that this film might make? Uh, I don't think for me, no. 
Okay. And I'll say why, and that's because of the influence it had and that it's sort of one of the building blocks of a genre that continues to this day. I, I think when we're talking about kind of the worst of the worst... Um, and I, by list, I mean the newly christened disavowed list, which chronicles the worst films we've covered, such as Men in Black 2, One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, and the Harry Palmer TV movies. Uh, Cam, you were saying? Yeah, so, like, I get it. Like, as dramatic storytelling, it's pretty bad, but I, I just feel like it contributed something, and just given the people behind it, I think this movie has at least sort of an, a bit of an artistic legacy, and um, I found it, again, like, I know you were really bored. I found it more interesting, um, even if it was very flat. So that's why I have a hard time putting it with movies that I found, um, some of them very offensive, and others just so bad, there's no reason to ever watch it. Well, okay, uh, we won't discuss it any further, because we have to have a unanimous vote for it to make this avowed list, so we'll leave it there. I guess I'm going to go spend the rest of the evening watching uh, venereal disease movies <laughs> to try and cheer myself up after this. Although that's what you do most nights, right? Well, of course. That's, uh, <laughs> it's the perfect dessert to our to our chat. Exactly. And as such, the house on 92nd Street is not making the knock list and the dossier is complete and filed as classified. Now, Cam, before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a quick message from... Chris over at the Podtastic Audio Podcast. Roll that clip. Hey, do you have a podcast or maybe you're just thinking about starting a podcast? Well, I am Chris from Podtastic Audio, and here I show you tips and tricks on how to make your audio sound the best it possibly can with the gear you already have. With two years of experience on the Chris and Christine show creating the finest audio I possibly can make, I will show you the tips and tricks I have used on that show to make the audio sound fantastic. So if you have any podcast-related questions to your audio, you always can email me at podcasticaudio at gmail.com like this guy here did his name is joe joe writes in from the cast hey chris when we all sit down together to record our episode our audio is too low and it has a lot of echo in the recording how do we make our show sound better well joe is the microphone you're using rhyme with the name betty and is that microphone in the same room with you I'd start with that stuff first. And for more podtastic audio information, you can go to anchor.fm slash podtastic audio, and you keep on making your amazing podcast. Uh, and that was, of course, the Podtastic Audio podcast. We've guessed it over there before, and if you ever want some advice on how to improve the audio of your podcast, or if you do Zoom calls for work or anything like that, Podtastic Audio is the place to be. Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, I know this was a rough journey for you, Scott, so we're going to jump onto a movie that I think is really going to win you back, and that is Pierce Brosnan's fourth James Bond film, 2002's Die Another Day. <sighs> we're closing out the Brosnan era strong. I could learn to like it. If I had the time. <laughs> I'm looking forward to to closing the door in a way on the Pierce Brosnan Bond chapter. Um, 
This is the only one of his films I saw in the cinema and haven't watched since. Oh, interesting. I'm not going to let you... Uh, you can take it from that what you want about my experiences watching the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't revisited and we have a very special guest joining us next week as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, any Bond film is interesting to talk about and there's no shortage of topics for us to bring up related to Die Another Day. Uh, from, from my memory, uh, it, yeah, it will certainly give us some things to discuss. For sure. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Die Another Day and join us next week. Of course, The House on 92nd Street did not make the knock list, but you can find the films that did at letterbox.com slash spyhards. We are, of course, a proud member of Quite The Thing Media Podcast Network, and you can find out more about that on quitethethingmedia.com. Com. Now, don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming.